today. Absolutely just want to begin by, by saying thank you for being here. I hope that you do recognize what a blessing it is to together and pray and sing together and study God's word together. Uh, and so we're, we're very, very thankful for the beautiful morning that the Lord has blessed us with here today. Uh, we want to begin a new study, so let me encourage you, if you're not already there, to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. And the way we're going to think through this is that the book of Proverbs is set up as a father speaking to his son. You heard from what Brandon just read for us there a couple of times. You know, he says, my son, this is what I want. Now, let me just sort of get some of these preliminary things out of the way. Clearly, you do not need to be a parent for this to be meaningful. Because think about it, the way this is set up to us, the book of Proverbs from start to finish is a powerful, helpful, practical divine book that is written to every single one of us. You don't have to be a parent for this to be effective. But the way I'm going to think through it, and the way I'm going to present it and share it with you is if, just like this book is, here's a father presenting a message to his children, and over and over and over again, by my count, I think it's some 27 times, he will say, my son, I mean, several times right here in just this first chapter. Look at it, verse 8, verse 10, verse 15. My son, don't walk in the way with them. So three times right here in chapter 1, he says, my son, my son, my son, I'm pleading with you. I want you to know this. And then chapter 2 starts that way. My son, if you'll receive my words. Chapter 3, my son, don't forget my teaching. So the way this book is set up, the image you should have in your mind, should be something along the lines of whether it's, you know, maybe there's a distance. And here's a father, and he's writing a letter to his children. Or even more touching, the way I like to imagine it, is that right there they are together. The father is sitting there, the son is across from him, and he's sharing with him the depths of his soul. And it's not just a father who's seeking to, to do things like, you know, uh, share cold, hard messages. This is the way that it's going to be. It's my way or the highway. Boy, that's not what's happening here. These are not the harsh, cold demands of a king over his subjects. This is a loving plea of a father to his sons. Now, make no mistake, it is absolutely a message of authority. The directives that are given, they have to be carried out. The directives that are given, he's going to make it clear. There's right and there's wrong. You have to reject the wrong and embrace the right. To your detriment, you won't do that. There's clear authority here. There's consequences to sinful choices. He's going to make that crystal clear. But the key is that this instruction is given from a place of love. It's not given as some wicked, vengeful, power-hungry king who just wants to press his thumb down on his subjects and say, this is the way you'll live. The author is a king, but he's presenting this message like a father who cares. So real quick, before we get, really get into it, this, this first lesson, this first week, we're going to spend a little time talking background, which we won't have to do as we move forward, Lord willing, in subsequent weeks. 
But this, you look at verse 1, Proverbs 1.1, 1, 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. You recall, if you flip back in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 3, 1 Kings 3, we've had Saul, we've had David, and then we've got Solomon ruling over the United Kingdom of Israel. And God comes to Solomon there in 1 Kings 3, and he says, ask me whatever you want, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. And in 1 Kings 3, verse 9, Solomon just says, I need help. I feel like a, a child. I feel like a baby who's been put in charge of this unruly group of people you put me over, God. I need wisdom. I need understanding. I need brain power. Please help me with that. And the Lord is so pleased with that. He said, you didn't ask for money. You didn't ask for uh, long life. You didn't ask for your enemies to be put under your foot. He said, because you've asked for this wisdom, I'm so pleased. I'll give you other material blessings, but I'm so thankful that that was your heart and that's what you asked for. If you, if you read there in places like uh, 1 Kings 4, let's look at that. 1 Kings 4, I want you to read this because it's very telling. It's clear how amazing Solomon was. 1 Kings 4, let's begin at verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. So you think of any culture that was known, you know, proverbially known as being wise. Solomon beats the wisest of the wise. He was wiser than 31. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan and Haman and Calcol, Drada, the sons of Mahol, for his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now listen to 32. He spoke some 3,000 proverbs. His songs or his psalms were 1,005. He spoke of trees from cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of, of beasts, of birds, reptiles, fish. He was a walking encyclopedia. He knew about all of these things. People of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth, you had, or he, or who had heard of his wisdom. He was an impressive guy. And so people came from all over to sit at his feet and listen. Now here's the point. Proverbs is written, first and foremost, this is a divine message. Inspired by holy God. This is a message from God to us. But the human instrument used to write it was Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. We know that even in his wisdom, in his intellect, he still made awful choices. You read 1 Kings 11. You start reading about his descent into sin, allowing things to to influence him, allowing foreign women to influence him. He becomes an idolater. All of these things, terrible sins. You read the book of Ecclesiastes and you see how he, he chased after so many different things. He did chase after power and money and, and fame and just all the different kinds of things that might distract you for a moment. He was trying to find fulfillment somewhere other than God and it left him feeling hollow. He tried it all. All of it failed. And he came to realize only one thing 
mattered. Only one thing made you feel worthwhile. Only one thing gave you true hope. Only one thing mattered, and that was connecting your heart and your life to God. Everything else was vanity. And so here's, here's the message. Look, the good life, the good life is not found in any of those other things. It's only found with God. Solomon doesn't want his children to make the same mistakes that he made. He had tried it all, and all of it failed. And so what we want to see today as we look through chapter 1 of Proverbs is that Almighty God wants us to know about the good life. And I want to start our series of studies together by telling you, based on what Scripture says here in Proverbs 1, what it is that I want our boys to know about the good life. As you put yourself in this position, you put yourself in a position where you say, Solomon, I sit at your feet as one of your children. I'll read through this, this message as one of your children, Solomon. When you say, my son, maybe you're a mother, maybe you're a sister, you're a daughter, you'll say, I recognize you're still talking to me. There's a certain way that I'm to live that's just like this, and you recognize that. But the way that it's presented and the way it's preserved for all time is this father speaking to his sons. And so that's the way we're going to do it. And so these things are some of the things that I'm going to tell you up front. There's going to be times it's going to be hard for me to present some of this. It was hard for me to write some of it down. But it's a message from God to us. Because here's what God wants us to know. Just like I want our sons to know. Just like you want your family and your friends and people you care about, you want them to know. Our God actually does want us to live the good life. The problem is so many of us have a terrible definition of what the good life actually is. Front porch, beach, penthouse. You can live a good life with those things, but that's not the epitome of the good life. The good life is about knowing God. The good life comes from, shines through, is held onto, and is enjoyed by knowing God. This is what Jesus said in John 10, 10. The thief comes in to steal and destroy. The way you might understand that is even this. There are those out there who will tell you how to live. There are those out there who will tell you what's good, what tastes good, what feels good. There are those out there who will tell you what you need, but they're just going to destroy you. The thief steals. But then he continues there in John 10, 10. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I've come to give you the abundant life. I've, I've come to show you what the abundant life is. I've come to give you the good life, he says. God doesn't, listen, God doesn't want to ruin our fun. He doesn't want to keep us from fun. He doesn't want to stand over us, micromanaging us like some puppet master. That's not what God wants. He loves us and he desperately wants us to love him in return. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. God wants to give us all of the beautiful things that we could never get on our own. God wants us to live our best lives right here, right now, and to have that just continue on into living with and being with him and his presence forever. That's what God wants for us. So, through Solomon, speaking to his sons, God tells us what he wants to know. God tells us 
through Solomon to his boys, he tells us how to live the good life. And so, Lord willing, over these next few weeks, we're going to explore what this father says to his sons. We're going to see how, you know, we're going to learn how to thrive. We're going to learn how to, how to live differently, how to live faithfully in this sinful world. We're going to explore some sensitive issues along the way. But what we want to do is we want to know God's will. We want to see what's revealed here in this book and how it matters to us. We want to know how to live well. And Proverbs is going to help us accomplish this. We're going to start with this exploration of chapter 1 and just get, kind of get this big, broad image of how to live the good life. We're talking about specifics later. So let's start. How do we live the good life? What's, what does chapter 1 have to tell us here about various things that you and I can do about how to live the good life? Well, I believe it starts with this. Certainly the foundation of, of all things when it comes to us living in this world before God is we have to fear the Lord. Let's, let's go back to Proverbs 1. Let's read several verses here. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Chapter 8, verse 13. 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted and perverted speech. He says, all of these things I hate. Fearing the Lord means hating what he hates. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You want to really be considered somebody who knows something. See, Solomon came to understand. This guy who could tell you about every tree, he could tell you about every animal. He could tell you about climates. And he, could tell you about the, he could tell you about everything you want to know about this old world. And he said, but if you really want to be wise, you really want to have some insight into something, you'll come to know God. You know what he expects of you. You know what he demands of you. You'll know how to live faithfully before him, and then you're wise. He says, all this other wisdom that I've got, it's essentially rubbish because it's so secondary to knowing God. Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be cut short. And we recognize that there's some generalities here, some broad statements made here, but the specific godly point is just exactly this. The good life, the righteous life, the best life, the most fulfilling life is the life that's connected to God. The worthless life, the hollow life, is one that's separate from God. Now, we find this phrase, this, this concept of the fear of the Lord in Proverbs some 15 times said specifically. But the concept, the concept of fearing the Lord is on every single page in Proverbs. So, so what does it all mean? When he says this over and over, when he repeats this phrase, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, what does he mean? Let's, let's really stop for a minute and say, okay, hang on, let's throw on the brakes and let's Think through this, because you can tell me a thousand times to fear the Lord, but I don't know what it means. It's not going to help me any. So let's break it down into these categories. If we say that we fear the Lord, one of the things that we mean it could be this. I'm going to say three categories, but one of them would be this. If we fear the Lord, what we're saying is there are certain times when we are so impressed by his power 
when we're so amazed by who he is and what he has done and what he can do that it gets our attention and sort of scares us. That is part of what it is. Let me show you. Go to Acts chapter 5. Maybe put a mark somewhere, put a digital bookmark, put an actual hand in the page, whatever you might be doing, and stay there at Proverbs. But I want you to look at Acts chapter 5. We're looking at a couple of places here in Acts. In Acts 5, verse 5, remember this is a situation where some of the disciples were selling their property and bringing the money to the disciples so that they could help people who were less fortunate, help the poor, help the needy. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some land and get a big old chunk of money, and they just bring part of it, and they pretend like this is all of it. They say, here, Peter, pat us on the back, we're great. And he says, you've just lied to God. You've lied to God. When you had the property, wasn't it yours? You could have just kept it. Yeah, you could have kept it. When you sold the property, you had that money, it was yours. You could have kept it, right? Yeah, you could have kept it. When you brought the money, you could have just pretended, or you, not pretended, you could have just told us how much you brought. Instead of pretending like you brought all when you only brought part, you lied. Now, here's the power of God. Not only that he saw that and knew that, not only that he could pick the liar out of the bunch, but look at this, Acts 5.5. 5. When Ananias heard these words from Peter, when Peter said, you've drawn your last breath because you lied to God, it says he fell down and he did breathe his last. And then here's the key, the last part of 5.5. Five. And great fear came upon all who heard it. They heard this and they God is powerful. They heard about Ananias. God is so serious. God hates sin. God won't tolerate lies. God won't tolerate self-glorification. God won't tolerate this. And so it says fear came across the people. They recognized who God was and that God meant business, and it changed the way they felt and acted. That's living in the fear of the Lord. But it's not the only way. Another example might be this. If we say that uh, we're going to live in the fear of the Lord, it might also just mean this, that because we know what God has asked us to do, because we know what God's commands are, we just seek to be moral people. We just seek to be obedient people. Again, there in the book of Acts, look at Acts chapter 9. And what's going to happen here in Acts 9 is that you know, Paul is converted. Paul uh, meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes and he learns from Ananias, the preacher. He's baptized into Christ, and now he's going to go change the world. He's going to go teach other people about the risen Jesus. He's going to go tell other people that Jesus is the Christ. So after his conversion... Paul starts leading this new life where he's boldly preaching. And that bold preaching of Paul energizes the people there, and it, it lights a fire under the Christians who hear it. And so look at Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and they were being built up. Why? Because of the bold preaching of Paul. So they had peace, they were being built up, and then listen to this. And walking in the fear of the Lord... And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that multiplied. The feeling they had, the message they shared, the church itself grew. You had a group of people walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they were walking around scared of anything. The image there in Acts 9 is here's people who are excited. Here are people who are emboldened. Here's someone who's gone out and preached. And here's lives who've been changed. And I want to do it too. And so it says they were walking in the fear of the Lord. Just being obedient to God. And thus more and more and more good things happen. So that's also, so part of what it is to fear the Lord is to recognize he's powerful. Part of what it is to live in the fear of the Lord is just obey. 
But then another thing to live in the fear of the Lord is this. It's to be humble. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, read with me beginning at verse 17. 1 Peter 1, 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. So here it is. Live in the fear of the Lord. Throughout your time in exile, knowing, here's why you should live in fear, and here's what it'll do to you. When you know that you were ransomed, when you know that you were bought back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he says, walk in the fear of the Lord, knowing you've been bought by Jesus' blood. That ought to humble us to no end. Me, the, the sinner, me, the one who believed lies, me, the one who's gone so many different directions, me, the one who's done so many things wrong. Jesus died for me. Jesus gives me hope. Jesus gives me second, third, fourth. Jesus gives me opportunity after opportunity to repent. He says, walk in fear. Live humbly, knowing what Jesus has done for you. Now, we could, we could keep going, but I think that is enough for you to get the idea. When you go through Proverbs and it says over and over and over, you're to live in the fear of the Lord. This is what we're talking about. Recognizing God's powerful. But being submissive to him because we're so thankful for the way he cares for us. And so we humbly walk in his ways. So we could look at one other place. Let's look at before we go to the next point. Because in short, what it means that to, to walk in the fear of the Lord means that we rely on God for everything. It means we rely on God for our direction. We rely on God for our rewards. To fear the Lord means just to count on him. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It'll be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The good life begins with fearing God. All other things are secondary. This is where it starts. You want to live the good life? You want to be most fulfilled? You want to flourish to your capacity here and now? It starts with the fear of God. But the next thing is this here in chapter 1. Not only are we to fear the Lord, but we're to be mindful of our influences. And by that I mean we need to stop and really and truly ask ourselves, who are my influences? And really, which direction are the influences going? And by that, I mean this. Is all influence coming this direction? Or I'm the one that's just being led this direction and that because I'm just such a follower? Or is there maybe a little influence going this way? Or when I come to know the Lord, I can help share that and show that to others. Because read what it says here in Proverbs 1. Let's start at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching, for they're a graceful garland for your head and, and pendants for your neck. Just kind of a side note here. I want you to note as we study this together over the next few weeks, again and again and again, Solomon's going to talk about how living righteously is compared to wearing certain clothing. And what he means is this. If you live by fear of the Lord and you live according to the way God has called us to, it'll be seen. I'm wearing, I'm wearing a coat here. I'm wearing a suit jacket here. And you can see it. Well, in the same way, you ought to be able to see the way we treat each other 
the way I talk to you, the way you talk to me, it, it can be seen and felt and heard and understood. So he says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us and let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down into the pit. Because here's the, here's the payoff. If you'll come with us and we can lie and wait and we can do these bad things to people, here's the payoff. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us and, and we'll just have this one big, fat, rich purse. My son, don't walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of a bird. You know, here's the imagery. You've got a bird trap. Maybe there's a few birds here on this table. I walk down, slap the trap down on the table. What's going to happen? There the birds go, right? They're too smart for that. I don't slap down a trap here right where they are, and they'll go, oh, just hop right into it. They fly away. They're too smart. Now, it might trap them later, but you can't press the illustration further than it's intended to go. If I just slap the trap down right there, they're going to fly away, right? That's right. And so he says, vain is the net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men, so in other words, it's common sense. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It just takes away the life of its possessors. I want you to read one more passage with me. Go to chapter 4. 4, let's start at 14. 414. Do not enter. Again, the father says to his son, because he's been in this place. He's fallen for all these traps. He's done all of these ridiculous, hurtful, sinful things, and he doesn't want his sons to do the same thing. And so he says, don't enter the path of the wicked, and don't walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't go in it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep, the wicked, those who keep doing these things. He says they can't sleep unless they've done wrong. They're robbed of sleep unless they've made someone else stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness and they don't know even what it is they're stumbling over. Now here's what happens. The wicked... The bad influences, they make things sound so good. They say, look, we're going to offer you companionship. Now, that's important. We have too many people who feel isolated, who feel alone, who feel abandoned, who feel ignored, who feel overlooked, and the wrong people in mass and with strength are offering companionship. And that's tempting. And that's one of the things they do. They say, throw in your lot with us. We'll have this big fat purse that we'll share together. We'll have this big glorious house of all our stolen riches we'll live in together. We'll do it as a team. Man, that sounds great. Companionship is needed. But we need the right type. They also promise you know, material gain, all these riches, all this. So the wrong side, the wicked side, these influences, they make it sound great. But it just leads to your own self-inflicted demise, doesn't it? There in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, that's exactly what he says. He says, this type of life just leads to your own destruction. We have to be honest 
about which direction the influence is going. Whether we're being influenced or we're being the influencers. So whatever your age is, 10, 40, 80, you being influenced or you the influencer? Let me talk for a quick minute. I, re I recognize, I'm looking at, at the time, I recognize where we are, so we're going to do this quick, but I want you to think about social media. There's not a bigger source of influence than, the tech, than our technology on the planet right now. And part of it is the draw of companionship. You feel alone, you feel isolated, you feel forgotten. I'll find some community out there that will embrace me. Let me tell you something, just to address the young people, let me tell you this, nothing is secret. I've got a private community. No, you don't. Every single thing you put out there is going to be seen by someone you don't want it to be seen by soon enough. Don't fool yourself. Triple check your heart before you post something. Think about it. is what I'm about to post, is it true? What I'm about to post, you know, what, is it, what does it really mean? Or is it mean? Is it hurtful? Is it moral? It's influencing us and we're influencing others with the things we post. Let me say something to parents real quick. You have to know, and I think you do understand this at least on one level, but you got to live like there is no safe space. The moment that a device is in a person's hand, whether it's five years old, 20 years old, 80 years old, the moment that device is in your hand, every single idea from every single corner of the world is now in your hands. Every idea exists, is right there with you, right there with your kids. Doesn't do any good to say, well, we live in Barron County. We're not one of those huge cities that, yeah, we have every single idea, every single influence, all of it right here. The, I call it the pyramid of influence. Maybe a better idea would be a ladder of influence. I don't know, flow chart of influence. The idea is this. Influence ought to go this way. God first and foremost. Fear of the Lord is where everything starts. And then parents and then church.